excited. Friends in Fort Worth, Houston, El Paso, and any of the other 15, Tulsa, Woodlands, any of the other 15 or 16 Ports Live locations. Hey, we're continuing this series, Before There Were Kings. I'm gonna start with uh, telling a little bit about my uh, family life, specifically my son, that'll give us some direction for where we're going. I have a three-year-old son uh, named Crew. He's one of two children we have. This is him, there he is. Oh yeah, just rocking those Velcro shoes, man, got to. He, um, here's what I love about my son, and I'm grieving because I know the day is gonna come with this, the change. He's at that age where there is not an insecure bone in this kid's body. He's as confident as he could possibly be. I mean, in so many different ways, whether it's the fact that like, dude, I, I don't have to wear pants at any time. No pants, no problem, let's do this thing. He wants to be, his probably preferred dress code would be just walking around in underwear. He's, he, and he's gonna be ecstatic to show you the different designs that he has and uh, on his undergarments. He uh, is not afraid to go out if he's got food all over his face. Like, that's just a normal thing for him. There's not an insecure part of his life. He's so confident that he wants to make sure that any new trait that he has picked up, he will just uh, uh, very quickly move to make sure strangers know what he can do. What do I mean by that? I mean, like, he recently learned how to jump, which is a big accomplishment when you're three. And, and by jump, I mean he, he literally leaves the ground like the size of a nickel. But he could be, he will be so stoked. So he'll go up to like complete strangers and be like, hey, you wanna see me jump? And he, what's up now? And he'll get so excited, he'll like run around in circles. And it's like, I don't know who's, who's this kid's parents. He gets this from his mother. She's always doing that kind of thing. You wanna see me jump? And uh, he just has so much confidence inside of his life. He uh, is just willing to go to one stranger to the next and he'll just say, hey, have you heard me sing the alphabet song? And he'll just go from one person to the next and he'll just very quickly move through. He wants to make sure you know all the different skills and confidence that he has. And the reason I say as a dad, one thing that I've been thinking of is uh, I get sad about the reality that there's gonna come a day where that uh, security and confidence no longer is what it is currently or said more clearly, there's gonna come a day where he experiences and begins to experience insecurity. And he will not have just a confidence that I can go out and I don't care what I look like and what other people think and look at me and look how great this is. But insecurity is coming for him. And I know that because it came for me. And it's come for everyone that I've ever met. But at some point in their life, it's like we awaken to insecurity. We become very self-conscious, very concerned about what other people think about us very insecure about just different parts of our lives. I mean, think about the fact that every person in this room could quickly think of if I said, hey, if you could change one thing about your external appearance, let's just start as shallow as that. One thing, all of us would quickly go, I know what I'd change. I got a list, but if I can only pick one, I know what I'd change. And as long as um, really I can remember, insecurity has been a part of of my life. So I don't know what insecurity looks like for you tonight. I just want to talk about battling insecurity. Uh, initially, I called the message that we're about to talk through the cure for insecurity. And then I was like, I don't think that's honest. I don't know that there is a one size fits all cure, but there is a way that God lays out for us to battle insecurity. What do I mean by insecurity? To get us all on the same page. Here's what Webster's defines it and how I'm going to uh, incorporate is hey, insecurity is uncertainty or anxiety about oneself, a lack of confidence. I don't know what insecurities have been a part of your story or maybe a part of your past or a part of your present, but think about the ways insecurity has shaped us. 
Think about like maybe in middle school, you were late to the game to get braces or you were early to the game to get braces or you had the bowl cut or you had just, uh, you know, parents who dressed you in a way that you're like, what were you thinking, mom? Maybe you were a late bloomer and you were insecure about the fact that everyone had already gone through puberty and you were like, I'm in the 10th grade and I don't have armpit hair. And, uh, or maybe you, uh, maybe you're an early bloomer, which is not any better, right? When you're like 6'4 and everyone else is still like 5'2". Unless you're a guy, I guess, and then you're like, be five fo foam. <laughs> but just think about how insecurity is something that, man, it plagues and can plague all of us. Today, insecurity about what you look like, about the clothes that you have, the job that you have, the car that you drive, how it can own your perspective in a moment and rob you of the ability to be present with people because you're too concerned about what they think. I, in my own life, I think about how insecurity can have power over and has had power over just my willingness to try things because I'm afraid I would fail. I'm insecure. I mean, I, like, I, uh, I remember distinctly, even in college, um, we'd go out and, and I didn't grow up skiing on the water and we'd go out and we'd go on a boat and we'd go ski. And I remember at some point I like tried skiing, couldn't do it. And that marked me in a way where every time we got on a boat, I'm like, I'm good, I'll pass. It was just an insecurity. Insecurity, I, I can resonate with in my own life of just how ways that I can be insecure over external appearance. You always hear a phrase, tall, dark, and handsome. And I, for my whole life, I've never heard tall, extra Caucasian, and strawberry blonde. <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh at that. That's offensive. <laughs> no, but, so I don't know what that looks like for you. But I know that insecurity is something that has come and comes for all of us. And yet it will rob you, if you and I allow it to, it will rob us from experiencing and be really becoming everything God wants you to become. It may rob you of the future spouse you're supposed to have because you're too insecure to not be in a dating relationship. So your standards are not like, hey, are they, are they biblical and they, they kind of meet God's criteria? You're like, are they breathing? That's what I'm more concerned about. And so you go from one to the next to the next and you forfeit seeing what God has for you because you're too insecure to be alone. It may cause you to change jobs, to make life decisions, to orient your life because you're like, man, I'm defined by this car, so I have to stay in debt. Or I'm concerned about what other people think about me. I mean, just think about the power. And yet there is a freedom that God wants to have in our life or wants us to have as it relates to insecurity. And in that freedom, we uh, are better able to experience becoming the person God wants you to become experiencing a life full of purpose and a life candidly where you are comfortable in your own skin. How tragic is it that that seems so far-fetched for so many people? And so what I wanna cover from the book of Judges, which is what we've been in as we explore this series before there were kings, is the story of a guy, a guy named Gideon. And in his story, there's some principles that I think are so profoundly helpful as we battle insecurity. If you take notes, that's what tonight's message is. It's battling insecurity. It's battling insecurity. So we're gonna be in the book of Judges, chapter six, and uh, the series that we're in before there were kings, it's basically uh, looking at some of the characters in the book of Judges, which uh, is named after these different men. A judge in that time was not like Judge Judy with a black gown and a gavel. A judge at that time was a deliverer that God would raise up to save the people. And so really, uh, the book of Judges is like the X-Men, if you will. It's like these different people that God, you know, he kind of pulls out Samson, you're super strong. He pulls out Deborah, you're gonna be Ice Woman or whatever. He pulls out these different people 
And God shows up to them, not Professor Xavier. Um, I hope people are following me on that. I just asked, what's the name of the guy, the bald guy? And, and uh, well, he shows up and he basically says, hey, you're going to come be on my team. You're going to be a part of the X-Men. That's who the different judges are. And the judges would come and deliver the nation of Israel, which is what the Old Testament is all about. Basically, the nation of Israel would do the same thing over and over and over in the book of Judges. And here's what they would do. God would uh, set them free. They would sin against God and worship false idols. God would say, you want foreign idols? I'm gonna let you have foreign rulers. They'd be conquered by foreign rulers. They would cry out to God. That's called supplication. I think we have a slide even of that. Basically, just where they cry out and be like, God, we're sorry, save us. And then God would send a deliverer. He would send a judge to set them free. Tonight, we're gonna meet the judge named Gideon. But this was the cycle that goes on and on and on and on. And because of that cycle, the words before, or in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's setting up the fact that the nation would cry out for a king because they would just keep going through this cycle, this sin cycle, over and over and over again, crying out, hey, we need a king, someone to come in and rule our life. So that's the series that we're gonna be in. We're gonna pick it up in chapter six. And really, uh, six through eight, chapters six through eight in the book of Judges cover the life of Gideon. And I'm just gonna high level go over the story so you can, again, like we did a couple weeks ago, kind of watch the movie with me and I'm just gonna tell what happened. But let me start in verse one of chapter six and we'll pick it up as we look at the story of Gideon. The Israelites, verse one, did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. So the Midianites are the conquering power. The, the, the villains, if you will, of the story that we're about to look at. They come in, they conquer. And verse six, Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites, so the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So we're in that cycle. They sin, God gives them over, they're conquered. They're like, God, we're sorry, save us. And so here's, he sends his deliverer, Gideon. Then the angel of the Lord, which uh, scholars have long pointed out is, is likely Jesus, the angel of the Lord, the only term of that title doesn't appear in all the New Testament. Uh, it's consistently in places like this, we're about to see that uh, it would be, the angel of the Lord would appear and people believe that it is the pre-Christmas Jesus, that it is uh, God himself showing up before he came to this earth in his appearance, which is why it doesn't show up inside of all the New Testament. So he shows up, not Professor Xavier, Jesus himself to call Gideon and he does this. Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide grain from the Midianites. Threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press. Who hasn't been there, am I right? What does that even mean? What is he doing? He, he's threshing wheat and I don't have all the time to get into it, but basically the author's trying to point out like this dude was scared, he's threshing wheat, he basically wants to make a sandwich, but he's not doing it out in the open, he's doing it in the bottom of a wine press, which is like a pit. He's afraid is the point that he's trying to make. That this guy that's gonna be the hero at this point is not courageous, but he's a coward. And the angel of the Lord says to him this. The angel of the Lord appeared and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Or valiant hero, your translation may have. Wait a second, valiant? He's hiding, he's afraid, he's terrified, he's at the bottom, he's basically in a pit trying to make a sandwich. What do you mean the angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, I see you as heroic, I don't see you as you, I see you. I see all that you can be and will be. He saw things in Gideon he didn't even see in himself. And he says, hey, you're gonna be the one in the next verses to deliver my people. And Gideon responds and he says, verse 15, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh 
and I'm the least in my entire family. So, hey, my squad is the weakest of all squads, and I'm the weakest in my squad. How can you use me to be the person that you would set free, God? There's a lot of other people that would be better than me, even in my own family, he says. But the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and I will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting them against one man. So Gideon's sitting there, and he's like, man, you're going to have me fight this oppressive enemy? Okay, if that's true, I I need to have a sign. So he says this. Gideon replied, if you're going to truly help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. And he answered, I'll stay here until you return. So Gideon runes away, kind of gets an offering. He's going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And he begins to build the altar. It's all in front of the angel of the Lord. And he's putting it together. He's looking for his lighter to light this thing on fire. Angel of the Lord, we're told, does this. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of his staff. And fire flamed up from the rock, consumed all that he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappears. So he's sitting there looking for a lighter. And the angel of the Lord just shoots fire onto this thing. Everything's gone. Gideon immediately kind of overreacts and is like, oh my goodness, it really is the Lord. I've seen the Lord. I'm going to die. And the angel of the Lord basically goes, hey, dude, it's chill. I would have killed you already if I was going to kill you. Just <laughs> keep calm. And, uh, and that's, that's, what, that's my own paraphrase. But that's essentially what happens. And Gideon goes, man, I guess the Lord is with me. And um, he goes off to assemble an army to go fight the Midianites. And then a little bit of time goes by and he begins to wonder, like, man, was I really sure that God was with me? Am I really confident that, that what I think he wants me to do is what he wants me to do. I need to get another sign. It's a problem with signs. Like, they don't last. So he said, I, I need another sign. So he goes to God and says, hey, verse 36, if you're truly going to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. And he says, hey, I'm going to lay out a fleece. And on the fleece, it'll be on the ground. And when I wake up in the morning, God, if the fleece is wet, but everything around it is dry, then I will know that you're with me. And I will know. And, and so it's kind of a weird sign, but He goes to bed, wakes up that morning, the fleece is soaking wet, all the ground around it is dry. And then he begins to go, wait a second, that could have just been like a weird rainstorm, or I don't know what happened here. Somebody could have just poured water on it, playing like a joke on me. God, if it's really you, I'm going to set a fleece out, and I need it to be completely dry, have all the ground around it be soaking wet. Goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, the ground is soaking wet, the fleece is dry, and he's like, man, I guess this is what God is calling me to do. He begins to assemble his army. He gets 32,000 people. It's a lot of people. Here's the problem. The army he was facing had 120,000 people. I'm not and have never been great at math, but even I can see those are not great odds. Those are four to one. And one day God shows up and he's like sitting there and he's like, what are we going to do? 32,000. Hopefully these guys are good fighters looking at them. They're all starving farmers. So he's like, well, that's not we can't bank on that. We need another plan. And he's sitting there and he's beginning to think, what are we going to do? And God shows up and God says this. Gideon, you have too many warriors. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So he shows up and you've got to be thinking, I mean, how did that look? Sitting there, God shows up and he's like, hey, Gideon, getting ready for war. I've got to talk to you. We've got a problem with the numbers. Gideon's like, yep. I'm glad you brought it up. I wasn't going to say anything, but I I feel like the same thing. It's four to one over here. And he's like, I want you to shrink the army. And he's like, did I hear you? You you want me to shrink the army? What what do you mean shrink the army? He's like, anyone who's afraid, tell them that they can go home. So Gideon, he gets the group together. He's like, what are you thinking at that point? You're like, afraid. Look, it's four to one. Hey, guys, uh, God told me to give an announcement. I know nobody here is going to respond to, but if you're afraid, 
I know none of us are, right? Uh, if you're afraid, you can leave. Most of the army leaves. It's down to 10,000. And God shows up again. And he says, Gideon, there's still too many, verse four. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. So God introduces the very first drinking game ever. There's no alcohol involved. And he says, hey, I want them to go down the spring and based on a certain way that they drink will be uh, the factor that determines whether or not they're gonna be in this new squad and this new crew. If I'm Gideon at this point, I'm like, I'm not sure I wanna be a part of this plan. Shrink it again. He does the drinking game. They get down to 300 men. And God says, perfect. The original 300 for any of my guy friends in the room. Verse seven, with these 300 men, the Lord said, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send everyone else or all the others home. So Gideon goes from four to one odds to 12 to one odds to 400 to one odds. I mean, at this point, he has soiled himself multiple times. I mean, think about it, 300 people, 300 people compared, they're battling against the whatever biggest football stadium, college football stadium you've ever seen. 120,000, bigger than it. Verse 300. And he's sitting there going, I don't, what are we going to do, God? He basically gets the instructions. He goes and at night and he, here's the plan. He divided the men into 300, group, or 300 men into three groups. And he gave each man not a sword, but a ram's horn, which is essentially like old school trumpet, and a clay jar with a torch in it. And he said, hey, on my command, he goes up to the enemy's camp and it says that he looks into the camp and as far as the eye can see, he sees camels. The, the quote from the text is that the number of camels outnumbered the number of sand on the seashore. It's like as far as the eye can see, he sees people. And yet he gets his 300 together and he says, on my count, everyone blow the ram's horn, take your torch with the jar around it and throw it and smash it on the ground. And the men listen and they do what they were told and here's what happened. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horn, the Lord caused the warriors in a camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shitta and near Zerah and the border of, I'm not even gonna try, near Tabith. <clears throat> then he basically shows up, they take the ram, they blow the horn, they, they take their torch, they throw it on the ground. All of a sudden there's fire breaking out everywhere. The Midianites begin to panic. There's loud noise taking place everywhere. And it says it's so dark outside, the Midianite camps and battalions begin to fight one another and they think that they're being overtaken. And the ones that aren't killed by one another end up just running off and fleeing. And Gideon, through the Lord, through his plan, delivered and rescued the people of Israel. Gideon's weakness was his strength. They didn't lose a single person. That had they brought the 32,000, even if they had won, there was likely a good chance that there's gonna be some serious casualties, even if those guys can each take on four people a person. But with 300 men, God delivers and rescues the Midianites. Now, when I look at this story, there's so many different things that I wanna pull out, but there's just three as it relates to insecurity that I think are profoundly helpful principles, repeated all throughout the Bible, but three that are definitely inside of these texts. And so I just wanna give three takeaways as it relates to fighting and battling insecurity, or winning the battle of insecurity. And the first one is this, that you fight insecurity with your God-given identity. There's a lot of Christian-y words in there, so I want you to hang with me because I think this is so huge. You and I fight insecurity with your God-given identity. The Lord shows up to Gideon and he says, hey, let me tell you, in chapter 6, verse 12, let me tell you who you are. 
You are a mighty and valiant warrior. I, I don't see you like you see you. I don't see you like your family sees you. This is who you are. And he sees and says something about Gideon. Gideon never would have even seen or said about himself. You are a mighty, valiant warrior. And I am with you. And he speaks that over Gideon. You know what is most true about you? Whatever God says about you. What is most true about you are the things that God says about you. Your God-given identity is your truest identity that there is. Now, here's what that matters, and so stay with me in case you're like, I'm, I don't know that I'm totally following. The things that God says, this is who you are, are the most true labels you will ever wear in your life. The labels that you wear of, hey, I'm too fat, I'm too ugly, I'm too small, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I don't have the right job, I'm not lovable, I'm dysfunctional in a dating relationship, I'm caught up, whatever the labels that you are, that you wear, or you have worn in the past, they are lies when you compare them to the truths that God says about you. How do I know that? Because who can really give a label to someone and it actually be a true label? Well, as I thought about it, there's, there's a few groups. There's someone, if you're the maker, or the manufacturer of something, like if Nike makes a shoe, they put a label on there. If Adidas is like, hey, I'd like to put this on. They can't put a label on there. Nike can decide. He, they're the maker. They can decide what goes on there and what doesn't. If you're the maker, you could put a label on something. If you are the owner, you could put a label on something. Like, hey, I, I, I could name my car. And I could be like, you know what? My car's name is Stallion. If you came up and you're like, I'm, I'm, we're going to name your car Pegasus, I'd be like, that's weird. You're not the owner. You can't put a label on it. Or if you're the purchaser, if you purchase something, you can put a label on it, you can name it. I have a friend who recently, not long ago, they bought a dog that was 12 years old, this bulldog. And the bulldog had been named Sophie its entire life. And they were like, yeah, it's now our dog, so we're going to call you Fran. It, not even in, like, in the same universe where it's like Frophy. She'll still come to that. She's never once come to Fran. She still thinks her name is Sophie, but they're the owners, and they can say, this is your name. You're the maker, you're the owner, you're the purchaser. God is all three of those things. He made you. He tells us that your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. He purchased you. And everything that you have is on loan, including you. What God says about you is the thing that is most true about you. Whatever labels that you're going to wear, whatever labels you're wearing right now, whatever labels you have worn are at best temporary. Because you may be thinking, well, what about my job title? Like that, you know, that's kind of true. That is at best temporary. You will likely not be X whatever forever. Or you won't be forever for all of eternity. What God says about you is the things that are most true about you. What are some of the things that God says? Some labels that are not lies. You are loved. You were created on purpose. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are pure, righteous, holy. Everything in your past, everything in your present does not define you the way that Christ does. You have been forgiven. You're a child of God. Those are the labels that are the things that are most true about you. And you will fight insecurity like, man, hey, uh, I can fight the fact that, man, I don't like the way that I look. I don't like how much that I make. I don't like all the things that people think about me by saying, man, the one who matters most, this is what he thinks about me. The labels that are the truest, this is what they are about me. And the God who's there would look at your life and I wonder what he would say. I mean, think about it. Some of you, some of you just need to know there's a God who knows your name. He knows your name. He has plans for you. 
He has purposes for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10 said that before the creation of the world, he had good works planned for your life that he wanted you to experience and you to be a part of. In other words, God, before the world was created, had a to-do list with your name, big things that he wanted to accomplish through you. But if you and I will allow our insecurity to drive us away from allowing the freedom that comes from focus, this is who your truest identity is now and always and always will be. Or you can get caught up like I can in some of the lies, the labels that can get put on you. Labels like, man, you are what you make. You are what other people think about you. You are who you look or how you look. You are the job that you have, the relationship status that you have, and they're lies. They're labels that won't last because what is most true about you is what God says about you. It was for Gideon, and it is for you. Second takeaway that we see in just his story is this, that confidence from anything temporary is temporary. It's very simple on its face, but think about the things that Gideon was looking for confidence in. Like he was looking at least for two. Two of the things that he looked for confidence, like, man, hey, this is when I know I'm going to be confident. This would, this would make me feel a little bit more secure about myself. There were two arenas. One of them was signs. That he looked to find confidence, man, if God's really going to work, then, then you know, he's, I've got to have a sign. And four different times we're told in this story that he looked for a sign. That's the problem with signs. They don't last. A little bit of time goes by and you're like, man, was that really God talking to me? Let me just, this is a free public service announcement. This is like the problem, or I would be at least cautious for, because uh, working with young adults, there's a lot of times where people come down and you're like, man, you know what? I, I wasn't sure if I would date her or I should date her. And then I was in the car, I was driving, I was like, God, if you want me to date her, make the next four lights green. And then I knew they were all four green. I slowed down a little bit, but they were all four green. And it's like, dude, you're thinking like a Looney Tune. That's crazy. Anything that does not align with God's word you should be cautious about whether or not, hey, and then God showed me, because I was like, if the lights are yellow, or if, you know, I go outside and there's bird poop on my car, I know, it's you. That's a random example. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Anything, anytime that someone says, hey, I just feel like, you know, God told me, and the next words out of their mouth are anything that doesn't come from the Bible, you should be cautious. Hey, God told me, how did he tell you? And maybe he did. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying, hey, you should proceed with caution because there's a lot of things that God has told you. And if any of the things that God has told you don't align with God's word or counsel from kind of God's people around you, you should be concerned and be cautious. He looked for confidence and signs, and, and they didn't last. Just needed one after the next and the next. Because anything, any confidence that you come from something temporary it's always going to be temporary. The other arena that he looked for confidence was in comparison. Dude, this is convicting. Or was for me. Here's what I mean. Here's why it was convicting. Like he looked around and he was like, hey, uh, here's how I would feel more confident, God. If I was more impressive, if I was from a better family, if I didn't have kind of this baggage in my past, if I was from a stronger tribe. Remember that in the verse where he said, hey, how can you use me? I'm from the weakest clan and the weakest family. And you're going to use me that... Built into his idea is that, man, if I was from something impressive, if I was from a great family, a great family, if I was more physically impressive, then, God, you could use me. Then I would be confident. And confidence from comparison will never last. Think about the ways that our confidence is impacted, has been impacted 
is being impacted by comparison. Think about how much self-confidence we don't have, or maybe we do have because of comparison. I mean, we're constantly, like, like we've made it easier than ever to compare our lives to one another. Think about that. And I wonder how that's robbing us of being comfortable with who we are, focused on what God has around us, focused on doing God's will around us, focused on loving people versus just seeking to make them love me. What I mean by that is we made it easier than ever. We have like apps that one of the primary things that that certain apps and social media even do is they kind of give us our daily dose of discontentment, to quote a girl on our team. They give us that chance to like comparison. I can know, I can go on and compare to everyone else's life all over the place, every friend that I have. I compare to, hey, what they're doing. I mean, think about like, there used, to, there used to be a day where when I went on, when I had lunch today, I would just like look at my lunch and maybe people's lunches around me. Now I go online and everyone is posting about what they're eating. Can we talk about this for a second? This is weird. When was it ever normal in all of human history to be like, I need to tell everyone I'm having a burrito, okay? Everyone everywhere needs to know where I am. But it's just a part of who we are. We compare everything. I know what's going on in everybody's life. I can look and be like, well, there's always somebody with a nicer car. I can't believe they're on vacation again. Do they even have a job? <laughs> it's just easy to compare and, and be so like, oh, man, man, I'm pathetic. They always look amazing. Where are they even buying this stuff? Now there's app notifications, or there's notifications. I'm getting notifications from people sending me their workout information. Will you quit sending me your workout? On the Apple Watch, it's like, oh, yeah, they worked out today. Great. Is that a reminder? Ouch. Okay, get it. I don't have time. We got kids. Leave me alone. (laughs) It's just easier than ever is my point. And the only way that I really can think of, and there's probably several other ones, so don't email me. This may be one of the few areas where, like, we have it harder than older generations. Every other way that, you know, your grandparents would walk to snow, there was no shoes, the Great Depression, all that stuff. But they didn't have to deal, which is worse, much worse. I, I, let's all acknowledge, much worse. But they were not confronted with so many of the things that you're bombarded with every single day. And if you are not careful, you will do what we're all tempted to do every time, which is compare our life. And based on how I stack up to the clan or the people in my family, like Gideon, will determine how I stack up in life, who I am, how valuable I am, how excited or how much joy I can have. My mood will go up and down based on how I stack up. I mean, we were talking about it today. I think, I think of if my house, the only reason I like want another house is because I see and compare to other people around. If my house was transplanted to like the East Congo, Africa, I'd be like, dude, I am living large here. But when you're surrounded and able to compare constantly, you're able to all of a sudden be like, man, I, I got nothing. I don't have enough, never have enough. And if you are not careful, you will put your confidence in things that are temporary, and it will always be a temporary dose of confidence that will not last. You will draw from a well that will always leave you wanting, always leave you in need. If you find your confidence in how you look, you will constantly be insecure. No matter how pretty you are, some of the most beautiful people in our society are the most insecure. If you know anyone in the modeling agency, they will confirm that. If you put your confidence in a dating relationship, you're gonna move from one dysfunctional relationship to the next to the next because here's what's more important than you getting healthy or dating someone who is healthy and holy. What's more important is you having a relationship because it's where you draw your security, your confidence. You don't know what it's like to not have someone around. So you will never heal as a person. You'll never get out of that dysfunctional relationship and heal by pursuing what God wants for you, you'll just go from one to the next to the next. 
and you will always come up wanting it because anything, any confidence that comes from temporary things will always be temporary. If you look for it in money, if you look for it in number of followers on Instagram, you will never have enough. And the God who's there is saying, I don't want you to look. The goal of this message is not for you to have more self-confidence. In other words, it's not like, hey, guys, you need to just be you and you look great today and look in that mirror and be like, I'm a million bucks. That's not the goal. That will never last. The goal is not for you to have self-confidence. It's for you to find a source of confidence outside of yourself, for you to find a source of confidence that comes from God and from God alone, that he's the only well that will never run dry. That is the goal. In other words, it is not about how much, confident you, how much confidence you have. Is it about as is it is, oh my goodness, as it is about what has you confident. It's not about how much confidence you have. It's about what has you confident. Is it how you look? Is it something temporary? Or is it the fact that there's a God who knows your name, who's moving the pieces, he's sovereign over your life, he's in control of all things, he's working everything for your good, he made you just as you are, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. You could trust him, you can trust his way. Is that where you find your confidence? Or is it in your car? Then how much you make, how much is in your bank account? Anything temporary will always be temporary and will always leave you wanting. In my front yard, we have a, um, we have a natural spring underneath our house. It's really bizarre. And, um, and it leads to one interesting thing. I may have the only yard on the block that like, we're never gonna have a problem of the grass being watered. If anything, the problem is like too much. There's constant water. There's a spring of water underneath our house. So it can constantly keep, it does constantly keep kind of our grass always watered, never thirsty. The God who's there wants you to experience a life where you are never thirsty. There's a constant spring. You don't have to keep going back and forth and ebb and flow and how did my day go today and how much money did I make today or what did they think about me today or what relationship do I have today? But it's constant, it's fixed because it doesn't come from self. It comes from him. Have you ever met someone that has that type of confidence? It's like startling, isn't it? Like they're like, they're comfortable in who they are. They, they're like content. They have this God confidence and it, it like makes them like content. Like they have peace when things kind of go crazy. They know who God made them and they're, it's like they're okay with it. Because they found a source that is not leaving them wanting because they're not looking for their confidence to come from something temporary. If you are looking for your confidence to come from that, you will always be on the roller coaster ride of emotions and never experience the security that God wants you to experience. That comes from knowing him, walking and trusting in him. Finally, the third idea just related to confidence and security is this, confidence in God comes through obedience. Confidence in God comes through obedience. You will grow your confidence, your trust in God. You'll grow your faith in God, said another way, by trusting and obeying. Think about how Gideon's faith or his confidence in God grew in that moment. He's going up and he's like, dude, we had 30,000. God said, take it down to 10. I'm like, are you, are you serious? You want me to take it down to 10,000? Now we're down to 300 people. He looks and he sees camels as far as the eye can see. And in the moment, he's got a decision. He walks up to the line and says, man, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna obey God. 
And in doing so, he does. And think about how his confidence, wow, God's word, his promises are true. I can trust him. Think about how that would have gone. Think about how it would have not had he walked up to the line and been like, yeah, I see camels there. Uh, we're out on this. Guys, let's all go home. Let's try to get the other 30,000 back. Think about what he would have forfeited and missed out on. He wouldn't have seen God deliver his people. He wouldn't have been a part of God's plan. He wouldn't have seen all the ways, the incredible, miraculous, if you will, ways that God worked. Think about what he would have missed out on. And here's what's so important for you, for young adults in the room. We're about to be done. Most of us don't ever step up to the line like, like Gideon did in that moment and say, man, this is what God is asking me to do. It seems crazy. It seems countercultural. It honestly seems like pretty big, God. I'm not sure that I want to do that. It seems a little foreign, a little too much. Most of us walk up to the line and instead of saying, even though it's all those things, God, I'm willing and I'm going to obey you. Most of us walk up to the line and we go, ah, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm going home. We walk up to the line and we go, God, you said you want me to save sex for marriage? Wait. Are you kidding me? That's so old-fashioned. That's so outdated. I mean, that's, that's too much to ask God. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Right, you're saying that I have to like work a, a job or if I'm working a job that doesn't really allow me to be plugged into a church, to be using kind of my gifts to make Jesus more famous, to be in a community group and to be, have other believers in my life to encourage me. It, you're saying that if I work a job and there's just too many hours that I'm working that prohibit or don't allow me to do those things that I should change jobs? Yeah, I'm not doing that. Unless the other job has more money, then I would do it. But I'm not crossing that line. Most of us, we walk up to the line and we go, man, it's too big of a thing. And we choose not to obey. And we forfeit seeing all the ways that God is going to work. Let me, let me be really specific. When you walk up to the line and you say, God, this is how you're telling me I should date? That seems so crazy to me. I can't do that, God. Nobody does that like that. All the good Christian guys or Christian girls are taken. I just, it doesn't work that way, God. I'm gonna do it my own. You do it your own. You will forfeit seeing what God could have done, what God would have done. And you will end up with that guy on Tinder that you met and you'll have that relationship kind of string along and you'll break up a couple times, get back together and manic highs and manic lows. And that's the future that you have in store. And you will forfeit seeing what God could have done, what God wanted to do. If you're the person who says like, look, I'm 32, I'm running out of options here, God. And so yes, he's not exactly all in with Jesus, but he comes to church with me and that feels like a plus. So I'm gonna date him even though your word says I shouldn't, that I shouldn't be unequally yoked, that people in my life who are Christians are saying, hey, I don't think that guy's good for you. Even though all those things are true, I'm gonna date him, God, because I don't have that many options. My biological clock is ticking and I am not going to, you're saying that, man, if I follow God, I may end up single. Too big, Audi. <laughs> it's what most of us do. And you forfeit seeing how God would have worked, could have worked, wanted to work, all that he would have done in your life. Just like Gideon, had he walked away from the line, he would have forfeited seeing everything God was about to do before him. And the God who's there is saying, I love you, I'm crazy about me, I'm crazy about you. My way is better, will you trust me? Are you gonna keep trusting in yourself in your own ways? And if you do, your confidence in me will not grow because the only way it grows is through obedience to me. And whenever you take that step and you trust me, you begin to go, wow, that actually worked. God's way really is better. There's no one out there, I've never met and heard the story, I've been doing this for 10 years, I've never heard the person who'd be like, look, hey, you know, this is my wife, we ended up together, this has been great. You know, the one regret I have is I didn't have enough casual sex in my 20s. That's the one thing I feel like I left on the field. I've never heard it. 
I've never heard the person who said, I went all in with Jesus. And by that, I don't mean somebody who is uh, just anybody. I mean somebody who stands before you and goes like, man, my life is filled with purpose and joy. I'm following Jesus. I'm all in. That couple, you never hear them say that. I've never heard the person who said, man, I went all in with Jesus and just everything, it was terrible. Not that it wasn't hard, not that there wasn't challenges that came in life, but they began to experience purpose and peace, contentment, even a confidence, comfortable in their own skin. And that's what the God who's there, he wants you to experience. He wants you to put your confidence in him, but your confidence in him will only grow through obedience. And every day you have the choice. Am I going to choose to grow that confidence by being obedient or not and forfeit what God could have done, would have done? I think most of us, it's really easy, especially in Dallas, to say, man, God, I trust you with our words and not with our actions. I'm not actually going to follow it up. I say I believe you but I'm not actually gonna act on those things that I say I believe. There's a guy in the 1860s, and I'll close here, and his name was Blondine. He was a famous tightroper in um, France, and then he came over to America, and this dude uh, did mind-blowing feats. He particularly was well-known and famous for being the first person to ever tightrope Niagara Falls. It was over a quarter mile across, 160 feet up in the air, and he tightroped across. There he is. There's a newspaper thing from uh, him tightroping across Niagara Falls, 1860s. And he got so good at this that crowds would come out and they'd see him and they'd see him like walk across on the tightrope across Niagara Falls. I mean, that's certain death if you fall. He got so good that at one point he decided, hey, I'm going to do this blindfolded. He walked across blindfolded. You know, the great blondine. Then he was like, I need another challenge. He took stilts out, and he got stilts on. He walked across on stilts, the tightrope. At one point, he got midway through. He decided, here's my next feat. He goes to the middle of the tightrope, walks halfway through. He brought a cooker and a skillet with him. He cooked an omelet, and he ate the omelet, and then walked across. I mean, this dude was like unreal, and the crowds would show up to see him. And at one point, he decided to get out a wheelbarrow. He got the wheelbarrow. He began filling it with these bags of potatoes, potato sacks. And he walked the wheelbarrow, and he took this full wheelbarrow full of potato sacks, and he walked across Niagara Falls, and then he walked back, and the crowd's going crazy. And they're like, man, you're the great blondine unbelievable. And he looked into the crowd and he says, who thinks I could take a person across the tightrope with me? And the crowd, they're like, we believe in you. You're the great blondine. You could do it. And he's like, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) Silence. Except for one person who stepped forward. And he got in the wheelbarrow, and he walked across, and he made it. There's a sharp difference between the person in the crowd who says, man, I believe, and the person who's willing to step out, get into the wheelbarrow, and say, I believe, and I'm willing to act on it. Inside of the room, there are many of you who are claiming to be Christians. I would say... Hundreds, if not thousands, and yet your actions don't align with the words that you're saying. You are not choosing to date in line with God's will. You're not choosing to handle your life, your money, your time. And you would say and you'd hide behind the fact that, hey, you're a good person. And maybe by the world standards, you are a good person. That probably adds to even the problem because you're like, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. 
Of course, we're going to live together. That's just kind of what you do in this life stage. Of course, we're going to date this way. It's just what you do. Of course, I'm going to live this life or work this job. And you claim that, hey, Jesus is who he says he is. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's the one that leads to life. His way is good. And everyone should follow him. And yet you're not. And you're sitting in the crowd saying, we believe. But you're not willing to act on it. And you are forfeiting seeing what God would do, can do, and will do in your life. If you will trust him you'll forfeit being a part of moving across Niagara Falls with your life in ways that you never could have even imagined. Moving towards the marriage, the future, the man or the woman that God has for you, intends for you to be, that finds their security and strength in Him. I trust Him. Others of you, as it relates to this idea of trust, you have never had a moment where you trusted that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross He paid for everything you've ever done. He's the only way that you can have eternal life. That you've been given a free gift if you'll just accept it by God and I'm putting all of my hopes, all of my trust, everything that I have, if I'm gonna have eternal life, if I'm going to heaven when I die, it will only be because Jesus died in my place. He rose from the dead to show the payment cleared and he was more than enough. And I'm putting my trust not in how good of a person I am, but in him, in him alone. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. I can't do it alone. And I'm putting all of my trust in him. And the reason I know that you've never had that moment is when you're asked questions like, man, what do you think is going to happen? Or do you think that you'll have eternal life? Or do you think that you would spend eternity in heaven if something happened, Lord willing? You say, you know, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm still working on my faith. I've, just, I've done some bad things. I'm just trying to get my life right. And you are trusting in yourself. Do you see that? If you're someone who says, like, hey, God should accept me because I'm a pretty good person, you're trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in the only way to have eternal life, the only way to experience on this earth the abundant life. You're trusting in yourself. Whether you think you're good enough to have a relationship with God or, honestly, more prevalent, those who think you're too bad for him to right now in this moment in the seat that you're sitting in accept you based on nothing you will ever do. You will not ever be able to earn your way to heaven. No matter how long you go without looking at pornography or without taking a hit, without getting drunk, you will never, ever get there. No matter how many church services that you attend to get over that mistake that you made, some abuse you were a part of, an abortion in your past, you will never get rid of it. The gap is too great, and you are trusting in yourself. And the God who's there says, man, I will carry you. I'm the only chance you got. Will you trust in me? I died in your place. It's not good people in heaven and bad people in hell. It's forgiven people who go to heaven. There's only one way to get forgiveness. Accepting it. Accepting Jesus died in your place. He died the death you deserved. He lived a life that was impossible. You never could have lived as a free gift to make you the righteousness of God. That's what this Bible says. That he took your place. And you can keep being like, man, I just need to get some things straight if I'm gonna have, you know, that type of certainty. No, you don't. You need to trust in him. Let me pray. 
Father, thank you that you made him who knew no sin become sin. Jesus, to become like sin so that in him, for anyone who accepts him, accept him as Lord and Savior, Savior of them, they would become the very righteousness of God, the label that is most true about them is that everything in their past, their present, and their future paid for. And nothing they face, nothing they've done, nothing they will do can take that away. I pray tonight, God, you would break the veils that I can't break, that no words could break, no songs could break. And you would allow people to, for the very first time, believe that. And for the rest of their life, they would walk in that truth and trust. Not just in our words, but in our actions, God. Would you make us a people whose confidence in you is great because our obedience to you is great and we see his way is better and it leads to life and we wouldn't forfeit. God, I just pray right now specifically for friends in the room and I don't know how many this represents but who are in really dysfunctional relationships right now and they're afraid to break up. But others around them, candidly, your word has said, like, this is not a healthy relationship. It would call them to do that. But they're afraid that you would move them to act, God. And they wouldn't forfeit what you have for them. They wouldn't forfeit what could be for them. So in that way, in a thousand other ways, that when we choose to go our own way, we forfeit seeing you move, God, would you help us, strengthen us. Thank you for that you're a God who's defeated far more than an army of 120,000, but all sin everywhere, 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 with everyone has been paid for. We worship you in song. Amen.